Welcome to another Climate Tech Podcast, interviews with the people trying to save us from ourselves. In this episode, I caught up with an old friend and business school classmate, Jason Goodhand. Jason has been in the renewable energy industry for more than 20 years and works globally today in pushing energy storage technologies like hydrogen and lithium. We talked about how energy storage is changing the way our world powers itself and what he sees coming down the pike. I reached Jason in Toronto. I'm Ryan Grant-Little. Thanks for being here. Jason, it's super great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. Great to see you. You're a global business leader in energy storage. Can you break that down for us? What does that mean? Sure. So I work for DNV. It's a multidiscipline, multi-sector kind of engineering advisory and certification business. So there's a lot of things we do in maritime, oil and gas, but I work in a, a group focused on, on energy. And within that, a lot of the technologies we look at are wind and solar renewables. Those are pretty well established. They've got you know more than a decade worth of being a, a fully commercial, non-experimental energy source. But with some of our newer technologies like hydrogen, carbon capture, and battery storage, these are sort of newer technologies that are really sort of coming into their own. And because of that, you know, we're working on projects all over the world. We have global segment leads that really tie together sort of our strategy and what we're doing well in in one region and trying to export that to our teams in others. So we're typically advising renewable energy companies that are in wind and solar and explaining to them, you know, how do you use a battery? We'll do independent engineering to vet some of their projects. We'll help do modeling, do safety. So it's uh, it's pretty interesting, but anything that has to do with batteries or energy storage at DNV kind of falls under my remit. Okay. And you're drawing on quite a depth of knowledge with this stuff because you've been in renewable energy in one way or another since 2002. So going on 22 years. Back then you started a hydrogen company, which was very early and maybe too early back then. And since then, as you mentioned, as you sort of touched on there, you've been in wind, solar, various forms of energy, now Mm -hmm. a lot on the storage side. Can you talk a bit about the journey of what you've kind of learned along the way through that? I mean, you've basically seen the industry from its infancy through to what it is now. Yeah. So when I graduated from uh, from engineering, I got into automotive. So I was working on uh, cars for a bit, for about two years. And I started to hear about hydrogen and how it might be a fuel of the future. And this was kind of around the initial hype cycle of, of hydrogen back around 2001, 2002. Things were really exciting. And at that point, wind wasn't established the way it is today, nor was solar. And I don't even think we had, maybe we had lithium batteries going into phones, but that was about it. We didn't have lithium battery cars either. And so this was a very early stage and I got into hydrogen. It was a fun job. I got to look at a lot of cool things. You know, we worked on taking, you know, golf cart sized vehicles or military applications and things and swapping out batteries for for hydrogen fuel cells. Really exciting stuff. And then I took a little bit of a break in 2004 to go back to BIS school, which is where we met with the hopes that when I got out, the hydrogen industry would be even larger and me with my experience and a, a new master's degree would kind of jump in and take over the world. And that's not what happened. In fact, uh, hydrogen had gone quite quiet. And luckily, the company that I did uh, work with at the time way back when, it did stick around until it got acquired in 2018. Some of the other companies did as well. So they they moved from sort of this R&D startup phase a very sort of two decade, if not three decade long process to get to where we are today with hydrogen. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is not 
how much hydrogen technology has changed, but the energy space around it. You know, we have solar that doesn't cost 10 times what electricity uh, uh, costs on average. It's the cheapest form of electricity in many regions. Wind doesn't have a huge premium over regular electricity. And then we have, uh, you know, batteries being plentiful and used in the EV market. So a lot of things in the whole energy space are positioned differently to kind of help hydrogen into our, our future energy mix. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, with renewable energy, the capex is high, but once it's in, the operating costs, the feedstock costs are generally free, right? And so yeah. once it's in and you found a way to pay that down, and if it can last for decades, then it quickly becomes the cheapest form of energy. And I remember dealing with this whole balance with wind and solar and kind of in the mid-2000s. But you mentioned energy storage, kind of where it is right now. I wonder if you could talk about what that looks like in 2024 because that's an, a space that's evolved i think a lot but it doesn't get you know it doesn't doesn't make the headlines even though it might have an outsized importance into kind of our energy mix yeah so energy storage has always been like a great engineering solution for problems we have on the grid so as you know when you're generating electricity if you're not using it in real time you have to turn it down or turn it off uh, or find load to, to suck it up it's a, something that has to be consumed immediately and you know, if you're able to store that in a flywheel and a battery and some sort of form, that's always been a solution to a problem we have of how do you match load and, and generation. And where we're really lucky is the electric vehicle industry has taken lithium batteries that were used in phones, laptops, et cetera, and made that into a, a high volume, very commercially available, very rugged product or, or technology. And our industry has been able to adopt that to use it for energy storage, either on the grid, in the home, attached to a building. The big thing there is that it's brought the cost down. So unlike solar or wind, those technologies had to, they had to scale up themselves to bring down the cost. We're very lucky in the grid sector that the EV industry's done a lot of that for us. So mm. these gigafactories in China that are producing billions and trillions of, of cells They've done a lot of that scaling for us, and we get to reap some of the benefit. Grid-scale batteries still only make up, I think, about 5% of all of the lithium used. About 90% is going into, into vehicles. So you've mentioned, you know, maybe it's not getting as much attention as it should. I think that's a very regional thing. So, you know, batteries are expensive. They don't make power. They just store it. So you have to have, you're not even looking at the value of energy. You're looking at the value of storing energy. And the economics of any sort of project have to pan out or you're just not going to build these things. And what's nice is in China, they're one of the biggest markets in the world for grid-tied storage. They're just sort of mandating it and say, this is the engineering solution we need. Go build it to help balance all of the renewables that we're building. In the US, we're very lucky that some of the early tax credits for solar allowed you to apply that to storage as well if they were co-located. So if you had a solar farm that you attach batteries to, and that gave a bit of a, a CapEx bump or a, a benefit from the tax credit. And that's really why we see so much deployed in the US. Now, another market that I would say is sort of third is the UK. And that's where they're not using subsidy, but because they have a smaller grid and a lot of imbalance, there's enough value on the revenue side that they don't necessarily need any sort of a, a subsidy to help them put it in. Because energy costs are higher than in the U.S. there. That's right. The spreads on energy arbitrage, like the value of high versus the value of low, is pretty good and pretty regular. 
but you also have some ancillary services and other things that can do on the grid to help balance it that are valuable. What's interesting though is I feel like last year, this year, and next year is where a lot of the sort of other markets are turning on. And the reason for that is people are very confident in the technology now because of where it's been deployed in the US and the UK. We can see that these these are working. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And the costs have come down. So they're now sort of getting in lockstep with whatever the market prices are in some of those other markets like Europe, Australia, Canada. And so, if, I mean, if we just zoom back onto hydrogen for a second, as I kind of touched on, when I worked in renewable energy in the mid-2000s, and you've kind of mentioned this as well, but after we both graduated, we were in the same class in doing an MBA together, and we both graduated. And at that time, 2006, hydrogen was kind of the, you know, this hope that we'd had that for, you know, as a magic bullet for as renewable energy, especially kind of on the automotive side, it didn't kind of pan out. But it looks like more and more, you know, if not as a sort of a generating technology, it's making a lot of sense as a storage technology. Do you want to sort of talk about about the versatility of hydrogen and, and kind of how it makes sense in a 2024 context? I work with a lot of companies who plan to open up shop in or expand across Europe. My one big piece of advice don't fall into the trap of setting up a new entity right away. Instead, talk to my friends at Paracar, who can help you get up and running without all the costs, not to mention the legal and HR hassle. When I was hiring in different EU countries, I wanted my team to focus on their work, not on the country's bureaucracy. After interviewing a half dozen international expansion firms, I chose Paracar because they were by far the most knowledgeable and they're great people. Whether you're a large multinational looking to expand abroad, a small business looking for the right talent, or a contractor, they'll sort it out. Book a free, no-obligation consultation right now at paracar.eu slash climate. That's P-A-R-A-K-A-R dot E-U slash climate. Yeah, and I think it's the that versatility that actually makes it kind of confusing or distracting is that hydrogen did have this magic bullet kind of feel to it. And, you know, this was before EVs. So you're right. Cars were definitely where people were looking to say, like, how do we get away from gasoline? Let's use hydrogen. And that fell through in part because of EVs. You know, we had better solutions that that looked like they were going to be easier than Hmm. putting all the hydrogen infrastructure out there. There's a lot of inefficiencies with hydrogen. But if we get back to sort of the the broad view of its versatility, you know, hydrogen is a little bit like a Swiss army knife in the energy space in that you could use it for a portable generator. You could use it to make electricity. You could use it for energy storage. You can also use it for things like steel production to replace coking coal, where they um, sort of reduce the iron ore to uh, steel. You can use it to produce ammonia and other types of fuel. So it can do almost anything energy related and then some. But the big issue is in many cases, especially for the energy applications, it's going to be more expensive. And we're really used to as a society, whether it's not sure that it's even due to capitalism, but just we like to see a profit before we make an investment. We want to fix the world and try and make a buck at it while we're doing that instead of losing money. And so we often have to get governments to subsidize things to hope that they will be cheaper on the back end. And that's what's happened with solar, which is fantastic. But with hydrogen, just due to some of the inefficiencies, there's some applications that 
aren't going to make economic sense unless you bring in things like carbon taxes or or something else that really offsets it against the current or incumbent technologies. So right now, a lot of the places where we're seeing some of the earliest hydrogen projects are going to be related to not energy, but the production of ammonia. Instead of using natural gas to make your hydrogen to make ammonia, you could use green hydrogen or, or blue hydrogen. You might make different types of fuels and actually recombine carbon dioxide with hydrogen to make ethanol or some sort of aviation fuel. So I think there's some applications that are going to sort of get traction now. Hopefully that gets to a point where people get a lot more confidence around hydrogen. They see that there's availability for surplus hydrogen at some of the sources, and they can start to create more use cases or look at how we might green up certain industries or certain applications with hydrogen. But it's not, unfortunately, it's not the magic bullet when you start to include the inefficiencies of producing it and how that affects cost. But you mentioned that there's funding for it through like the Inflation Reduction Act, presumably in the U.S., if it's co-located next to generation like solar. So is that kind of like a rider or is it, you know, is there broad support for hydrogen under the IRA? Under the IRA, it's actually one of the nice things they did is you don't have to have it physically attached to your renewables, but you do have to, if you want to maximize your tax credit, it needs to be tied to renewables somehow. Okay. And there's actually uh, some of the tax language just came out, I think a week or two ago. And, you know, there were some proponents that said, hey, we just want to buy Rex or something like that and say, it's green, go for it. And other people were saying, hey, you can't burn coal at night by producing extra load to make green hydrogen, yep. uh, but you're actually polluting. You're taking <laughs> tax dollars to do it. That doesn't smell right to me. Literally. So I think they've kind of landed, they've landed closer to the the green side of things, of the, the more altruistic kind of non-polluting options. But there's, I think there's tweaks they can do too, to try and come to the middle a little bit to say, hey, we want to make sure we're not polluting and, and paying tax credits under the guise of greening things. But we also don't want to kill this industry right out of the doors or right out of the gates by making it way too hard or too expensive to bother going all this green way. So people are really trying to look at their projects and see if they still pencil or which ones are the ones that uh, have no problem meeting those criteria. So it's an interesting time in the hydrogen space, definitely. Years ago, the oil and gas man T. Boone Pickens moved famously from oil into wind, but he talked about wind with natural gas kind of managing the peaks, managing the load there. Mm -hmm. And I wonder to what extent... Do you see hydrogen as a solution for managing kind of that load because things like solar and wind are de facto intermittent? Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot more like battery storage or storage technologies taking over that role of of peaker plants instead of natural gas. I think we're still going to see natural gas. And what we should be doing is really putting a target on coal, right, to get rid of that Um, gas I mean, it's a step in the right direction. Obviously, you want to you wanna get to zero pollu- uh, emissions or pollutants if you can. But I think uh, it's okay to keep some of the gas around for a bit as you're cleaning up your grid and trying to get rid of coal. And then you can kind of focus on how do I use storage in place of some of these peaker plants? Some of the, yeah. some of the gas plants that run only a few times a year are very expensive and very inefficient. And batteries can do a great job at that. When it comes to hydrogen... I think unless you've got a really good solution for piping it around in the existing natural gas network, 
or you have a salt cavern or some sort of really cheap, vast storage that you can you know, take renewable energy, split water into hydrogen and oxygen and bury that hydrogen for when you need it during the lean months of the year when you're not getting as much solar or weeks where there's not enough wind, you might run a peaker on hydrogen to do that. What's interesting too, and this is what's great about having a global role, is I'm constantly reassessing my convictions about things. So mm. I might take a view and say like, this doesn't make sense. And I'll be doing that through a very North American-centric view of what are power prices and what is available. When you look at places like the UK, Japan, Hawaii, where they're not part of a large distributed grid, they don't necessarily in all cases have natural gas, the UK does, that's where they might look at solutions like, hey, should we be importing green ammonia and trying to build a power plant that runs off that? Is it expensive? Would we do that in, in sort of mainland US or Canada? Probably not, but in some places, that might be the only way for them to get away from importing coal or LNG. And more and more, we'll be looking at the national security issues around it as well. I mean, I'm based here in Austria. Natural gas, there's, of course, you know, a an ecological element to it, but there's very much a national security question as a lot of it, you know, comes from Russia um, still here. And speaking of pipelines, I mean, I don't need to tell you about Nord Stream 2 and, you know, maybe the Baltic's not going to be the place to put a, a pipeline anytime soon. So these are <laughs> considerations as well. I wonder, I mean, it's interesting that you do have this global perspective and you are kind of bouncing around all over the place. I wonder if you could just touch on kind of your thoughts about how energy storage and things like lithium, you know, this we're just starting to touch on, like, you know, I, I more and more look at the world like settlers of Catan and, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Lithium. Yeah. yeah, and, and you know, lithium is the one that, you know, it's starting to make headlines, but there's going to be, there'll be wars fought over it almost certainly in our lifetime, right? So what do you see? What's kind of evolving on these technologies that people don't think of day to day, but are actually going to be completely vital to our future? Yeah, I think a lot of the people have really turned an eye to the fact that no matter where the lithium comes from, whether it's Australia or South America, it's all produced in China today. And I don't just mean the batteries themselves, but even the lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide, like as you refine the, the raw products that get shipped, they get processed in China. And we don't have capacity to do that in the United States right now or other places. So they've kind of, they had the market cornered. The US and other countries are looking at, you know, how do we get cell production, you know, in our country? How do we bring some of this processing and where are some of the new sources of lithium that, that we might seek out? I guess one of the good things, and I don't know exactly how readily available it is, but people are looking at sodium as a sort of backup alternative to lithium. Hmm. It's not as good in terms of you can't run a premium car like a BMW or something with a, a nice, dense, super power-packed NMC-style lithium cell. A sodium one will be much bigger, much heavier, but for sort of mass drivers or mass transit, it might be completely suitable. And the availability of it is much higher. I mean, it'll be perfect for my facade station wagon. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yeah. So people are, uh, I would say in the energy storage business, not only within the EV, sort of how do we get away from lithium, everybody keeps going back to the periodic table of elements and looking for, you know, what's the is there a different magic bullet for energy storage? So we have people looking at like zinc-based batteries, iron-based batteries, Mm. there's vanadium flow batteries. People are looking at, you know, how do we get something cheaper or better in some capacity than than what we've got with lithium? 
the hard part is lithium so light and dense mm-hmm. that it's got a lot of advantages. So you're really just trying to look at cost, perhaps degradation or safety to try and look at something that holistically displaces lithium for certain applications. With cars, that's probably the best technology you can get for driving around an EV. And it's certainly improving as well. Things like solid state technology, continuously tweaking the recipe of what's in a lithium battery, they're getting better. So we're, we're kind of, all these competitors are chasing a moving target, but it's exciting because as long as things are improving, as long as there's innovation and progress, we'll typically end up in a better place. And what are some things that excite you when you look at the year ahead? You know, what are some of these innovations that you're tracking right now? I've had an eye on what's called long duration energy storage for a while. And that's like the zinc and iron battery type technologies that I mentioned. And there's also things that are based on heat and and, and thermal cycles, but all of them share something in common. They're typically larger than lithium batteries. They're typically less efficient. Some of them degrade slower, but all of them, the sort of raison d'etre, I don't know if uh, you're a French speaker, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but (laughs) the... uh, the whole reason that we're looking at those is typically because they promise to cost less. And so when you look at this from a, would I build a project to store energy and you're comparing lithium to some technology, if something's like a, a 10 or 20 hour battery or a 50 hour battery, and it costs much less than lithium, then you might be able to do things on the grid that you can't do with lithium today. I guess one of the problems is, is a lot of the value is addressed by short duration lithium mm-hmm. today. And so we're going to see what some of these technologies uh, come through with and then the types of applications that that they get paid to do. Okay, like jet fuel versus diesel, basically. (laughs) Uh, You and I have both been strong proponents of careers in renewable energy and an impact for as long Mm. as we've known each other, um, going back 20 plus years. Jesus, (laughs) crazy when Mm. you think about that. What advice do you have for people who are looking to get into this industry? I think more and more people are looking to make a change and get into renewable energy or clean tech. And a lot of times I get questions. I know you do too, because a lot of times the same people come to both of us. Mm. What advice do you give them? What do you say? Um, One thing that I would mention is you may not be able to get the perfect job you want right out of the gates, depending on where you're transferring from or how young you are. But there's so much demand in every single one of the technologies that I mentioned, whether it's storage, hydrogen, solar, wind, other types of technologies too, like sort of aggregated DER type uh, technologies, but anything to do with the energy transition, there's so much demand for skilled people that we're even looking for people with not ideal experience and expertise, but people that can be trained to add to this workforce. And so if there is a role that is something that's kind of interesting in solar, that's not your ideal focus, and maybe you're trying to get into storage at the end of the day, if you're not in the energy industry at all yet, maybe take that solar role for a year and a half, two years or something like that. Get some experience, understand how the grid works, understand how to model, you know, capital investments and what these projects look like. Think about safety, labor, how to EPC, how does EPC construction work and get some of the familiarity that the, is then much easily transferable into energy mm-hmm. storage or whatever it is that your your true passion is. But I would say it's a, it's definitely an exciting space. It's so much bigger now than it was when we, we started in these spaces. Like it used to be, you would go to a, a conference and look around and kind of know everybody because they were there last year and there's only, you know, 500 or a thousand of you. And now you go to a, 
something like Intersolar in Munich, and there's, I don't know, 50,000 people there. And uh, it's just such a, a big industry now, and everybody's struggling to hire. So there is opportunity, and you just got to figure out how do you get in at the ground floor. Yeah. So if you're listening and you're interested in getting in the space, but you don't have completely relevant experience just yet, take heart because you're still needed skills and attitude and they'll train for the subject matter expertise that's required. Yeah. Jason, it's been a minute. It's great to see you again after all these years. Thanks for joining. Yeah. Great to see you. Take care. Thanks for listening to another Climate Tech Podcast. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe, rate, and share this podcast. Get in touch anytime with tips and guest recommendations at hello at climatetechpod.com. Find me, Ryan Grant Little, on LinkedIn. I'll be back with another episode next week. Bye for now. This episode is supported by Grizzle, B2B content to create and capture demand. I first met Grizzle's founder, Tom Watley, five years ago at a conference in Dublin. I was so impressed that I signed a deal with him to do all my software company's content that same evening at the pub. Remember that, Tom? Um, kinda. And they're still doing it two years after we sold the company because the new owners love Grizzle as much as I do. If you sell B2B, book 30 minutes in Tom's calendar at grizzle.io slash climate. That's G-R-I-Z-Z-L-E dot I-O slash climate.